0: cross along with luke doris this is the podcast uh what is this? this Is the second one of this year we've been doing tropical weather for so long here this year luke already i can't believe it's only the third day of june
1: we have the second podcast and the third name storm of the season <laughs> yeah
0: and <laughs> yeah, that's in the record book
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've never had that before so first things
0: first pronunciation mm-hmm. Chris Cristobal Cristobal yeah how, how do you pronounce this Cristobal, Cristobal. You know, if you say it it's a Spanish word right but so but in English Cristobal Cristobal you yeah. know the accent okay. is on the toe
1: I sound like such a fraud I feel like such a fraud <laughs> sometimes whenever yeah. I try to pronounce it correctly but there we go
0: yeah there you go uh, so this is uh, as I said the second podcast of the season. And it has been quite a season so far, record-setting up to the sea storm, the earliest ever. And we hasten to add that that doesn't say anything about what's going to happen in August, September, and October. That's you what bet, the, covered the- That's what the last, records just, say, right? Yeah. So today, uh, though, we're going to talk with Ken Graham, the director of the National Hurricane Center. We'll get his thoughts on what's going on this season. And, of course, what's new for 2020 and the lessons we learned in 2019. And we certainly did learn uh, lessons with Dorian. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, for the latest weather, you've got to tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida or Local10.com, where we do stream all the Local 10 newscasts. So anytime the news is on, starting at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, for example... Uh, all the way to 6.30, we're on the air and you can go to local10.com and watch that or of course at 11 o'clock at night or noon or 9 in the morning or 4.30 to 7. It's all online live. Also, there's the Max Tracker Hurricane app and the Local 10 Weather Authority app and of course all those have the current information. And be on the watch for the newsletter. If you go on local10.com, you can sign up for the newsletter called From Brian Norcross. So, in the morning, I kind of write a synopsis of what's going on, what I think the threats are, especially oriented uh, towards South Florida. And you can uh, get that there, and I'll keep you up to date, and it'll be emailed to you every day as soon as we publish it, which is normally kind of first thing in the morning on every day that there's uh, any kind of threat. All right, so uh, let's talk about Cristobal uh, and what's going on with that today. came ashore. As we're recording this uh, on Wednesday afternoon, its uh, center is over Mexico. and What happens next? That's the big question.
1: Yeah, so 60 miles per hour roughly is uh, what it had at landfall. So pretty strong tropical storm upon landfall in Mexico. And what it looks like now, and what the big question is, is this is going to meander near or overland through roughly Thursday night, Friday morning. Um How long it remains over land and what kind of vortex we have left by the end of the week is really going to determine its future from there, right?
0: Yes, but there's another big complication, and that is that it is inside a bigger low-pressure system, right? This Central American gyre that we we talked about last week, I think, on the podcast, right? And, And so... The question is, if the central circulation of Cristobal gets, gets wiped out, then uh, what's left if the whole system is the new storm, right? There is no core kind of related to Cristobal. It's going to be very interesting from a National Hurricane Center standpoint, and we'll talk again about this, will it still be Cristobal? because the the rule nominally is if the circulation remains. So in other words, this was not Amanda because Amanda came from the Pacific, ran into the mountains there in southern Mexico. That central circulation got disrupted at the surface. And then when it reformed off of the north, it was a new circulation that formed. So if Cristobal's circulation Kind of dissipates, but the circulation of the big low around it continues. Is that going to count as the same system or not?
1: And if it did, would that be the earliest D storm <laughs> yeah. on record?
0: Well, if it was, a, if it, they counted it as a different circulation, yeah, that would that would rate. Assuming it got to tropical storm strength, uh, which the models indicate that it will. Uh, that would be a D storm. But anyway, so that's sort of a, a you know, the, the rules don't take into account every exact situation, and this is a pretty weird one. But the general issue is if the storm loses its core and it really does end up being a big, broad circulation with a big old eye, then what that's going to do is tend to drive the weather out from the eye, the strongest winds won't be anywhere kind of right around the center. They'll be displaced a good ways, or the, the radius of maximum winds will be 50 or 60 or 70 miles. So it becomes like maybe it's a more a subtropical storm, not a tropical storm. And, and that tends to push the bad weather farther to the east as well. So along with the upper air uh, uh, flow, that's going to push the bad weather to the east anyway. So, you know, that pushes it in the direction of Florida, which would increase the odds, I think, of our feeling some fringe effects, more fringe effects here than if it stays uh, more organized with a more of a core.
1: Both scenarios lead to the possibility of or likelihood of some sort of tropical or some tropical system making impacts on the direct impacts on the Gulf of Mexico uh, the Gulf states later on this weekend or early next week right
0: yeah that looks very li- logical and likely because the weather pattern that's developing is a very well established weather pattern you know it's it's like big dominant features coming into play that generally the computer forecast models predict pretty well now the exact details of exactly where if the center would go over, uh, you know, the Texas Louisiana line or Louisiana Mississippi line or closer to New Orleans or, or something uh, else, that's another question. But but the, you know the details. But the general idea of the, this corridor to the north, moving on up, that will uh, almost certainly uh, happen. We you know believe that the models have a good handle on that. So people in the northern Gulf Coast generally need to be ready for something to happen there. I see you just got light. That's good.
1: Yeah, light came in <laughs> yeah. and uh, and an extension cord for my headphones. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, the next time I start talking, then why don't you just change out your headphones because I can see your extension cord is tight. All right. So this uh, let's talk about the, the Central American gyre situation for just one second. This, so the Central American gyre, is an area of low pressure that forms over Central America. It's one of those things that's kind of like the polar vortex, right? Um, nobody in the public ever heard of the polar vortex until a few years ago. And it does have a kind of a cool name and that got picked up in the media and and uh, suddenly people all talk about the polar vortex. Uh, the Central American gyre is caused by the way the winds from the Atlantic come in and they're kind of strong in the early part of the season and the late part of the season. And then uh, the Pacific winds kind of, if you get an westerly wind, an extra westerly wind burst, you back. Hey, Luke, can you hear me? I'm back. Okay, great. Um, uh, So I was talking about the Central American gyre as being caused by the winds from the Atlantic coming in on the East. So they get an East wind on the North side of Central America And on the occasion, and it usually happens early in the hurricane season or late in the spring or toward the end of the hurricane season, you get kind of a westerly wind in the Pacific. And so Mm -hmm. that gets the air spinning over Central America and this gyre. And a gyre is just a large spinning weather system. They use that word in the Pacific for the kind of of, uh, hurricane-y type systems you get out there that have a big old eye. They're kind of like a giant tire and it's called a gyre. There's also a gyre in the, in the ocean, a big swirling uh, area of swirling water is called a gyre anyway. So that's what that, that word is, which isn't a very common English word. Well, yeah, you're talking about the water uh, that happens sometimes
1: in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Didn't Hurricane Katrina go over a water gyre that was basically a supercharger of warm water that it got to sit over for some time. Is yeah, that you get this
0: rota- rotation, but generally the word gyre, I do remember it being used for that, but generally the word gyre is used like in the Atlantic, you have a, a circulation that kind of goes with the high pressure system and the water goes all the way around. Uh, and in the Pacific, there is that gyre of trash in the middle of the Pacific, which is a yeah. huge rotating area of trash, right? That's what that Word is used for. So anyway, you've heard about the Central American gyre. It's it's uh, you know it's been picked up now with social media. People are used to the word. But but what's what and it's not at all unusual to have it happen. It's not unusual to have it spin off a storm. Um, Hurricane Michael in 2018 came out of the Central American gyre. A lot of Pacific storms come out of the Central American gyre. That is kind of the the gyre. The spinning gyre breaks off a piece, and that becomes an entity all in of itself. Now what's Different Here and and, uh, somewhat unusual, I'm sure it's happened before, but I don't remember it, uh, is that this tropical storm has gotten caught inside the Central American gyre, inside the big low pressure system. So it's been making a little loop right by Mexico, caught inside there. And what's going to happen is a dip in the jet stream is going to come along and disrupt the gyre, essentially lift the whole thing. Cristobal, if it exists anymore, and the gyre to the north. And that's going to go up toward the Gulf Coast. So it's a big, massive area of disturbed weather uh, heading to the north. So uh, that, anyway, that's the, the the sequence that's going to happen. And, and what will be left of the core of that, which is the current Cristobal, that's what we don't know. That's going to be it's going to be interesting.
1: Yeah. So a couple, what, by the end of the week, we should have a better idea. But you can't really know much until then, right?
0: Yeah. Well, we can't. Yeah. Because it really depends on how long Great Snowball stays over land. Does it lose its inner core circulation? Like when we look at it on the radar right now, we see a lot of thunderstorms, especially on the right side of it, uh, right near the center. So it's very tropical right now. But Mm -hmm. is that going to get disrupted by the friction with the land? And to what degree, uh, depending on the model you look at, well, of them just completely wipe out that circulation. And so what goes north is a giant circulation. And the strong winds are displaced to the east of the center, way to the east of the center. For example, if the center were to go over Louisiana, the strong winds are showing over Alabama and the Florida Panhandle, like hundreds of miles to the east. So that's not really a tropical system. So we may get into another kind of mnemonic pretzel with this thing of why it's the name it is or why it's not the name it is and that it's subtropical and all that. But, but, uh, but we'll see. All right. One more thing I wanted to talk about is this issue of when hurricane season, uh, begins. Cause I wanted to ask Ken Graham about his thoughts on that. Uh, so we talked a bit about this, uh, last week. Um, uh, now that all this has happened, uh, have we changed our mind at all that that uh, hurricane season should start on June 1st? Or some oh, people have op- said, by the way, maybe it should start on August 1st. Yeah, my opinion, yeah, August 1st. August 1st. I mean, yeah. yeah, where you
1: really get into, and I changed my opinion on this because we had this conversation last year on the podcast, right. and I thought my reasoning used to be, well, the Pacific. The Atlantic. Let's sync them up, um, and you know that way we do get these storms that come early sometimes, and it just kind of made sense to me. But since then, uh, I've heard you and mm. uh, you know, looked, uh, just looked at it again, and go to the core of the season where the storms tend to be the the big, powerful, you know, ones that really threaten life, and that tends to be August. Uh, through really October, but November too. So um, that's what
0: I would vote for. Especially especially through October. Yeah, although, you know, in 2005, we had nasty hurricanes in July. And, uh, you know, occasionally there's a hurricane in June. Uh, I mean, there's only really been one significant one in relatively modern times in, in June. So, uh, but I agree that it should not go back. I should not be earlier to take into account the fact that, yeah, sometimes we have to name storms because they meet the criteria in May, but they really are kind of wintertime origins. And then you get into, you know, naming nor- nor'easters or naming every low pressure system that comes along if, if you take that to the extreme. So, so I agree with you uh, on that. All right, so let's bring in Ken Graham from uh, the National Hurricane Center, the director of the National Hurricane Center. He's been around every year, he's been in town. Seems like we've had a really devastating um, hurricane. Ken has a lot of experience. He came from New Orleans National Weather Service office and dealt with hurricanes and hurricane communications there. So uh, let me introduce Ken Grant. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you once again.
2: Good to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's great to see you. And uh, we were just talking about this question that was circulating when we started getting these named storms in May. Uh, this year has been quite a barrage of named storms early in the season. In fact, record setting. Uh, Whether hurricane season in the Atlantic should move back to encompass more of these late May storms, which we seem to have found popular here the last few years. Do you have an opinion on that?
2: Yeah, that's, you know, I, I get that question quite a bit, and it's good to talk about mm-hmm. it. And you really think about the June 1st date. It's, really to, it's a preparedness date. I mean, you can go back you know, many, many decades and, and find where we're talking about the season beginning June 15th. I mean, it, it's all about preparedness. And and if you think about it, anything before June 1st, most of the time, I mean, it's it's weaker. There, there's a lot of hybrid storms, um, not, not a lot in the way of big storms and landfalls. I guess if that starts to be a trend uh, with time, maybe we can start really having more conversations about it. But let, you have to realize we get severe weather outside of severe weather season. You're gonna get some of these storms um, outside the hurricane season. It is all about preparedness. And June 1st is the target date that we have folks really start ramping up their preparedness part and their plans.
1: Well, that makes perfect sense. And speaking of the early you know, we're off to the record earliest third storm, third name storm. Um, and the first two got started with You know, almost winter-like features. Baroclinic processes is what they're called, and Cristobal is coming from this large, low-pressure system, this rotating kind of loose gyre. Uh, It's called the Central American gyre. And uh, you know, are these types of baroclinically induced and gyre-oriented type systems are they intrinsically harder to forecast?
2: Yeah, they've become that way. I mean, if you could go back probably before 2000, go back a, you know, a long time ago, I, I don't know if we would have detected some of these. I mean, we have so many more tools now at our disposal. So, I mean, that's that's part of the factor. But the other part is, you know, it, it's part of our preparedness matches that, that applies here too. I mean, they're, they're, they're hybrid systems, but at the same time, whenever you start pulling in uh, tropical moisture, any, any part of it, even a hybrid storm with some tropical uh, portions of it, you can get intense rainfall. You can have significant impacts. Even in this, this next system, even if it ends up being stretched in some sort of hybrid system, we, we, you know there's a potential some areas could get three, four foot of storm surge. So, so it, it's still a way to, to keep highlighting all these impacts. The impacts could be so great that I think it's still important to be able to highlight these.
0: Yeah, we were talking about this uh, Cristobal situation and how it's going to evolve. And let's just get into the technical rules a second because we were kind of speculating and and, uh, I thought you were the guy to ask. So Amanda formed in the Pacific, lost its surface circulation over the mountains. And so even though the kind of remnants of Amanda turned into a new system, it got a new name because the surface circulation was lost. Okay, now Cristobal is going over the land, There's a decent chance it's going to lose its core circulation, but there's this giant circulation around it, which uh, almost certainly is what's going to get pulled north, whether there's this old Cristobal core or not. So does that, uh, according to the rules, uh, qualify for continuing to be Cristobal or, or under what circumstances might that actually be a new storm or can you imagine that happening? Yeah, Brian, I'm
2: just <laughs> glad. I'm just not glad we're not getting back out in the Pacific and then coming back back ashore dissipating and doing this all over again. That, that would be a wild conversation. But no, I, I think what will happen is, you know, that'll be that'll be some of the origins. If, if it is the, the actual center that, that, you know, continues and gets out in the Gulf, of course, it'll keep the same name. The, the discussion that we've had some of the models have indicated something else that's interesting what ultimately ends up in the gulf was that was that an outshoot of of convection that was far away from the center and that actually gets developed that's where we've had the conversation what does that become but if it's the original center and it it continues to, to move north with time after it sits down there uh you know that will keep the same name so you know we've had the same conversations here we'll see what ultimately happens but uh you know either way I tell you, you know, sometime later this weekend or this weekend, uh, we just, you know, the the conversation I was having here is just keep it moving. I mean, whether it develops or not, whether it's a tropical storm or a minimal hurricane, and we just got to keep that thing moving once it moves north to make sure we keep the rainfall uh, rates a little lower.
0: Yeah, it looks like the, as a matter of fact, the uh, circulation, if the circulation kind of dies out over land, the Cristobal circulation, you're still going to have a massive circulation going north, right? And on the right side of the storm, it looks like the, the winds, depending on the model you look at, and you know we, we don't know what's going to exactly happen here, the, the winds could be very well displaced from the center, so it doesn't really look terribly tropical in a lot of those models. But what well, well, my question really was is these kinds of systems like this, do you think that they are just always going to be difficult to forecast that, you know, these weaker, fringy storms that involve land and uh, it, or is there some kind of science that you can imagine in in if not my lifetime, your lifetime, or if not your lifetime, Luke's lifetime, that is actually going to be able to uh, you know kind of pin down these things? It feels like the forces involved are so chaotic and and random that that they might they might be past the line of forecastability yeah
2: I, I love that question because it, it's something that actually i've put in some of my uh the outreach presentations this year two two different points with, with that question one of them is if you, if you look at our forecast uh, data when it comes to our actually uh you know, our verification scores. You know, how well we do. We, at the Hurricane Center, you know, you and I talked about this, mm-hmm. we share what we do well. We mm-hmm. also share things where we don't do well. We're very open with how we're doing because I think it's important to keep everybody in tune with the state of the science. But one thing that's interesting, um, we had uh, somebody over here um, put a, a, an analysis together to look at our verification score based on on uh, the strength of the storm. So a tropical mm-hmm. storm category one through, through category five, it was glaringly interesting that we do better in the stronger storms mm-hmm. we do better with the track we do we do better with the the forecast when it comes to the stronger storms because the models are able to latch onto a center the models are able to, to latch onto that storm morphology the actual characteristics of the storm so we do better so if you think about it the tropical storms these these messy hybrid systems our verification scores are actually the lowest the other point if if i wanted to make is really important we the state of the science, we struggle in the Genesis phase. And and you know I could put in the Genesis phase, what I'm talking about is um, when they first develop. And you know you think about the hurricane hunters, the, the excitement that people get when they see the videos, when they go through the eye and the stadium effect, that's important because we can get radar in there and that sort of thing. But at the very beginning, that Genesis phase, that is so crucial for us to get the hurricane hunters in there. Dorian is a prime example. Mm-hmm. We, we, I really wanna be open and talk about the genesis phase of Dorian there were three centers three separate centers that they were finding in the hurricane hunter data each one of those centers would have had an incredibly different outcome in hurricane Dorian on on the left side of the cone um Brian it it would have probably dissipated over hispaniola Mm -hmm. we probably probably would have been shredded by those mountains maybe some rain for us it would have been fast Uh, Cuba South Florida we would have got some rain the center a little bit of of Puerto Rico and and also Hispaniola been a weaker system, still faster. But the center jumped when when we saw that on satellite Mm -hmm. and and the hurricane hunters were out there. It jumped to the right. So that means didn't hit land for a while and then actually got into a situation that uh, no land, more warm water, longer track and such a longer track that the steering currents were able to pull out and that caused the stall think about that for a second all those are very big differences in what we feel in florida and what we feel in the u.s i wanted to make that point genesis
1: phase is, is tough it is it almost sounds like a game of plinko you know where you start up at the top and you, you select and who knows you know if you've got three separate centers uh and such drastic outcomes uh how exactly that plays out now when i was in college We opened up our books and there was a word that we learned and a phrase, the Madden-Julian Oscillation. And as we come to learn, it's an upper wave, it's kind of slow moving, and as it passes by a certain area, if it's in its positive phase, it can lead to to, uh, Mm. an enhancement in tropical activity. So. That was that, and then fast forward into the Twitterverse, and this word is out there again, and you're you're seeing experts, and it's really cool to be able to be connected with people that have a deep knowledge and understanding of that, and I'll see the discussion about this MJO on Twitter quite often. So from the Hurricane Center standpoint, is this something that is uh, just to look at, maybe kind of amusing, or is it an actual forecast tool that you guys use?
2: No, I, I think, you know, if you think about our forecast, most people know, I mean, we go out five days, but no, those, those are the things when you look out further out, you know how we get, it, it's, it's, you know, you look historically, we sometimes have this early start, you know, you get some storms in June. Then a lot of times you get a little bit of a lull before we get into the big activity in August and September. So we watch out for that. When we start seeing some of those patterns, we start saying, well, you know, it looks like things are gonna get much more active and more conducive in the environment in about two weeks or one week. We're, We're thinking of those things and we're sharing those things and we'll gear up our operations i uh, thinking about that as well. It's like, let's check the schedule. Let's make sure we're all on board, ready to go in here in a couple of weeks when things get fired up. So no we use it. I mean, there's some, a lot of science behind it. Um, I, I think it's something that, that we always like to watch, but the big danger is this, you know, we, we can't get hooked on those things because just because we have a, you know, everything comes together for a, a stronger period, that doesn't mean you can't get, you know, some, some storms that, that, that create a lot of impacts in between Um, some of those, uh, some of those uh, peak points. So we just got to realize whether that happens or not, any, any time during the hurricane season, you can get something spin up and, you know, hurricanes don't care about your timelines. It's it's something I've been trying to say more often. I mean, sometimes we get nice 10, 14 days notice, like on a Florence, um, but other times you get three or four days like Michael. And that's why, you know, these storms don't care about your timelines and and it goes back to preparedness any, any time in the season.
0: And besides that, it's difficult to forecast hurricanes as it is Forecasting the MG, MJO is a whole nother can of worms. So let's go back to talking about uh, Dorian just a second. And it, you know it's really hard to imagine what's going on in the, the Bahamas. They're just starting to begin to rebuild, and then COVID comes along, and uh, I mean it's just horrible. It's just uh, it's horrible. We feel horribly for the folks there in Abaco. And uh, when they were facing this storm last year, and when the when Dorian was was hitting there. It was estimated, uh, based on the data, that uh, the winds were peaking out at about 185 miles per hour. But we know that the instrument, the SFMR, that's on the aircraft that measures at the surface of the earth by looking at the foam on the ocean was actually returning numbers that came in in the analysis or the the, uh, correlation equations that are used at the current time. At higher numbers, and I know that research is underway. We've talked about this on the podcast actually to try and figure out what those uh, numbers mean. Is there any, do you have any sense yet whether those those readings that show the winds actually being stronger in these super strong hurricanes, we've seen it in Michael, we saw it in Irma, uh, are real or? Is it just too early with the research? And, and when do you think we'll have a better understanding if we keep having these incredibly strong hurricanes? It's going to become, you know, something that's going to be important to know, I think.
2: Yeah, I think there's several phases with that that, that, that happens. You have what you think at the time, the data that you're getting, the, the estimates that we get, um, you know, from, from aircraft and, and satellite. We get all, all those right, at the immediate time of the storm. But then there's the other part. That, so we have that. And then we go into the, you know, we get into the storm reports. We start doing our, our post analysis to get the actual reports out. I don't know if everybody knows. We actually do a, a storm report on every single named storm throughout mm-hmm. the whole season. And people can find those online. They can read about them. Um, there's a, there's so much work that goes on uh, behind the scenes to put those together.
0: Yeah, even but, the, so. the four-day storms get a report. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or four-hour storms. What am I saying? The four-hour storms get a report. Yeah. yeah. And, well, I mean, <laughs> the... the the people internally that get the dorians those are the couple <laughs> exactly the
2: but so you know we, we did an analysis on it so then you then you're talking to other countries and you're getting the observations you're looking at the aircraft data you're doing talking to the researchers trying to calculate i mean this is complicated you got sea foam you got angle of the plane uh, you know how is that impacting what you're you're seeing when it comes to the wind speed or even the, the waves and the estimates that we get so all that analysis takes place it's there's all, I don't want to say arguments, there's some heated debate that goes on to to look at some of the data um, to get the report out. So then the report goes out and it's the best we we have at the time. There's something else that happens. It's called a post analysis, longer term. And we actually have, have researchers that go back and look at the data. Sometimes there's new science Sometimes there's new research that you can look at old data and, and, and make new assumptions from that. So it'll still be analyzed. A storm like that, it'll be analyzed for years and years to come. You can think about something 10 years from now. They'll be, they'll be looking at the latest research. They'll go back and look at that data. And, and if there's new science, we, you know, we were not ever married to any, any bit of uh, those values. If there's something that shows it stronger or weaker, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll update those reports and get that out.
1: These oddball and anomalous SFMR readings have been, what, since Irma? Was Irma the first one where it kind of spiked above? Uh, the What's the highest that the SFMR uh, kind of anomalous readings have been? Which storm produced that?
2: Well, I think there was some of that, and we saw that in Michael. And there had to be a lot of analysis associated with, with that data. And then actually us going to the, the Cat5 uh, after that analysis. But part of it was they were getting, they were getting, uh, you know, those planes going through were getting beat up pretty good. I mean, just listening to not just the radar data, but the other instrumentation, all the planes were, it was very turbulent. They were getting beat up. So you had to look at the angle of the plane. You had to look at it, um, put data side by side to see, okay, were were they getting a lot of turbulence? And what was the angle of the plane? Not just, you know, left and right, but forward and back. Um, There's a lot that goes into it. So that analysis we saw in Michael uh, was something else There was a lot of that kind of uh, those spikes but you know they were able to really look at it and everybody got together got their heads together a lot of heated debate and they everyone was a you know pretty unanimous at the end that it was a cat five
1: so back to Dorian for just a moment you touched on this earlier about how the storm and the models uh, did not handle it especially in its infancy and it's very young formative stages and it was also you know a weak disorganized storm that had some form of land interaction is that the same issue with cristobal where we've got a weak storm with or well weakening i mean it made landfalls a strong tropical storm but a weaker storm uh with land interaction the same issue
2: it's the same issue because if you think about it you know we, we get on land we're in mexico and you know is, is there going to be is it going to dissipate is it the same center what if what if it dissipates but a new piece of convection I don't know, I'm making it up, you know, 100, 200 miles away, starts to rotate. That becomes the new center. That that has a lot to do with the final outcome of this, this system and where it starts to go in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, the strength. I remember in Michael there were multiple centers as well. So that genesis phase, and that's, we, you know, we, we could call that a genesis phase now because you're going to get interactions with land and then some sort of reorganization. Those are the phases. There's a lot of error, and, and we... Um, I think we talked about it last year or definitely the year before. I can't remember. We were, we're trying so hard. Everybody wants us to do a six and seven day forecast. We want to do it, too. We really want to do it, too. We're doing it internally, but we're finding the error to be uh, really significant. In some cases, a uh, thousand miles or in, in other cases, you, you get uh, recurvature over the Atlantic when you know, ultimately it was a storm that made landfall. I'm speaking about uh Florence mm-hmm. so we're, we're still figuring out how do you depict that is that go on the cone is there another way we could do that is that a discussion um, so we're, we're we're we want to do we want to go six and seven days mm-hmm. we really do we've heard everybody everybody wants it we're struggling how to um, really show what that that error really is
0: and yeah, yeah, let's take a second oh, sorry. Go, go ahead Luca no go ahead
1: uh, yeah so you, you this was a topic I was uh, we were going to bring up with you is the seven day forecast and the, the current thinking from the National Hurricane Center. So it's been a discussion for a number of years, uh, but does what ha- happened with Dorian in the Caribbean, maybe Cristobal, these, you know, uncertainty with, with storms varies and some have high uncertainty. So what's the latest thinking on this uh, with the seven day forecast? And how do you keep from telling people or warning people too soon or over warning uh, when a storm is just forming even if the you know these forecasts are kind of iffy
2: yeah it's tough because i mean it's it's another topic that I, I know we've talked about and it's you know all the model tracks are out there so you know even if we keep saying you know we're, we're trying to get to seven days we but we've got a five-day forecast listen to the five-day forecast but we, we know everybody's looking at their favorite model i mean it, it happens especially you get 10 days and 15 days and you know it, it's you know depending on your personality type you're going to pick the one line that hits you and every single time you're going to get pretty worked up, or you, or another type of personality is you're going to pick the one line that doesn't come here um, every single time. So I mean, those are the things that that we that we know that go on anyway. So we're that we're trying to get to six, and the day six and seven, because we know people are are really looking at it. But the reality is, what do you do with a thousand mile error? How how do you not over, you know, warn when you start looking at a, a cone that that could have such a spread out to day seven that encompasses like the entire Southeast US. So that's what we're wrestling with. And the good news is, I did want to tell you this, because I, I, I think some of this is new. We actually have nine total social science projects going on at the same time right now. And one of them is looking at the cone. How, how do we better depict these impacts? I mean, we plop the orange blob on the cone, right, to show the wind. But then there's also storm surge, Irma. There's storm surge in, in Jacksonville. How do we best, you know, look at that? The surveys show people are still using the cone. People are still looking at that track. So what can we do better to be able to portray all those impacts on the map? So that that not only day six and seven, but at day three, day four, there's so many different impacts outside that cone. How do we uh, fill in that? How do we show it? Because we gotta find a way to to show that in a picture better. So I can't wait. I'm actually really excited to get the data from these social science projects, share it with, with you all and then Together, come up with ways that we could do do better to show all those impacts on a map.
0: Yeah, you know, there's two issues that come to my mind with the the idea of a seven day forecast. One of them is that a lot of storms don't live for seven days, and if people have an expectation that they're going to get seven days worth of warning, but the storm doesn't even exist seven days before, this can even be a problem in five days, by the way. But especially at seven days, and the other is. Yeah, it's one thing to say, okay, there's a thousand miles of error, but in the case of Florence, for example, a thousand mile wide cone wouldn't have caught it (laughs) at seven days, right? The the storm in seven days uh, was forecast by the models to be out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere, so certainly nowhere near remotely close to South Carolina. Uh, So, uh, I mean, we're kind of pushing up against Mother Nature here in a way, aren't we, by by kind of ever assuming that we can tell people seven days in advance uh, that they're going to be threatened or not?
2: And and I think that's why we focus on, on the five days. We tell people, you know, we, we hope to give you five days. You know, a Michael is going to give three or four days. So sometimes, you know, you're going to get shorter notice depending on the situation. But think about this it, it, and, and why it matters. I mean, I think I want to tie, for everybody listening, I, I really want to tie it back to, why it matters and why we're even having this discussion, because if, if you go back to Florence and, and you think about at day six and seven, you see this the system recurve
0: out what in the ocean, go out in the ocean. In other words, yeah, yeah. it's
2: going to go out to the Atlantic. It's mm-hmm. going to recurve. And if I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh, man, we we dodged another one. All's good. The problem is, well, it didn't. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one problem. But at day six and seven, there's a social science term called anchoring. And it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon because what happens is um, people, us, all of us, we, we all, uh, being humans, will anchor on one of the first pieces of information we get. And what happens is you carry that through. So if, if the first piece of information you get is it's going to recurve, I'm okay, and you're coming up to a holiday weekend, I'm going fishing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to the hunting camp. I'm going to the fish camp. I'm, I'm going to go do my thing. And now all we'll of a sudden your timeline's caught to a couple of days when you come back going what is this so i wanted to tie it back to you know the science and the modeling and the error but it ties to human reaction it ties to response and preparedness and i wanted to bring that home because i have to be honest with you a situation like that i could argue that that's dangerous so we so how do we best show those errors that's what we're trying to grab and, and figure out
0: Going back to Dorian uh, a second, you know, we had these forecasts, model forecast uh, challenges and problems with the, not problems with the models, but it was it was scenarios that the models didn't handle well. One, as it was entering the Caribbean, like you were talking about and, and Luke was mentioning, and also, as was uh, between the Caribbean and the Bahamas, it intensified dramatically more than any model uh, forecasted, and, and of course, therefore, than the official forecast was. But yet when it came near Florida, it was really a forecasting success because no watches and warnings went up for uh, my hurricane watches and warnings for Miami-Dade and Broward, which for a hurricane that strong, that close by was stunningly remarkable. And then it went up the coast of Florida and kind of hung to the right of the cone. So you had this situation where it wasn't as bad as it could have been wasn't as bad as was discussed do you think of the the issue north of Broward County in other words from Palm Beach County north where there were some impacts but not as bad as was discussed as a communications problem more than a science problem because the errors weren't too big right but but there's a sense of that people i think that the forecast was worse than it was because because not that much happened in in east central florida for example
2: yeah there's, there's so many things to think about with, with with those questions and you know it's interesting what what i, I think brian you were in a couple of my presentations and i said this it was an accident the first time but then i kept saying it little wiggles matter i get on my tippy toes all these topics are are amazing to talk about so i love doing the podcast um Think of this. Go back to 1999. Remember Floyd? Very well. And it, it, it wasn't much of a different track than, than Dorian. Right. If, if you look at it, there was a little more spread in our, our forecast than, than we had in Dorian, a little more uh, consistency with our forecast in Dorian, but not much difference. Mm-hmm. But the you go back to that cone in 1999, the cone was massive. I mean, right. South Florida evacuated, Florida evacuated, the Carolinas. It triggered the largest evacuation at that time in U.S. history. So then you fast forward to 2019 and the cone is this dot inside (laughs) this old cone and we the preventing i mean think about this for a second preventing somewhere around three million we'd have you know we've tried to do some calculations it isn't easy about three million people didn't have to evacuate in in dorian that's staggering i mean that's how far that's how Mm -hmm. far things have come and I don't know, you just think about it, it is, it's it is. It's an amazing, it's, a, it's an amazing feat.
0: Yes, when uh, Floyd was coming toward South Florida, and it was coming right toward Miami, <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember getting on the phone with Mayor Alex Pinellas, Miami-Dade County, was, uh, he was the mayor here at the time, and and it was like, you know, what should we do here? Because the forecast's all for it to turn, but boy, it doesn't look like it's turning, and people here are really nervous and I said, you know, if you if you got to do something, tell people in high rises because you know the, at that time we were concerned because a lot of buildings hadn't been retrofitted at that time. You know, talk to people in high rises and talk to people on the islands in Biscayne Bay and the very low lying areas about the possibility of having to move, be ready to move very quickly uh, if this thing doesn't doesn't turn. And and that's what uh, that's what he did. They never did really order an evacuation, but kind of alerted people because we were scared that the forecasts were gonna be wrong. And the, so the, the change in the amount of confidence we have today is, is really is uh, remarkable. It's just uh, tremendous.
2: Look, you know, go, going back to the other part that you had in there was, it, it's, it's interesting to look at the models. They, they actually did what they were supposed to do with that, that track. In, in other words, hindsight, the track was, we had a good forecast in the end. Mm-hmm. But in hindsight, there was there was a 100 knot error in the intensity forecast. So the, the models were doing what they were supposed to based on that track to go over Hispaniola and tear it apart and become whatever it was. But what a different solution. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd have to go back and look at how many miles. But if you go that track, even 80 miles made the difference between being shredded and, and being a, a monster hurricane. That's staggering. That's going back to that Genesis phase thing where, you know, you start getting out. You know six seven days out in a situation like that there is a lot of inherent error not because not because there's um problems or or that sort of thing it's really the nature of where's the center going to be what what's the final form of this storm i mean it's just amazing situation to see the the scenarios from dissipation and just rain to a monster cat 5 hurricane depending on which center took hold that even 27 years of doing this, Brian, I still I still think about it, and it mm-hmm. still amazes me from a science perspective.
1: Well, a lot of the error that we've talked about so far has been track error, and really, track error has improved greatly uh, over the years but track and intensity are intrinsically tied and intensity is much more elusive. The forecast for intensity are much more elusive. Why is that, Ken? Is it a lack of data? Is it uh, a lack of understanding of the processes? What are your thoughts there?
2: Well, I think there's some things in the oceans that we still need to learn. I, I think, you know, it's interesting that, you know, when you take, everybody always comments, probably the number, and you all get it too, right? The number one comments you probably get what, into March, April, and May is, wow, the water's really warm. The mm-hmm. Gulf is warm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you always get those comments early on. Of course, well, it's warm every
0: year, sensors, but, uh, right? yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, you think about those sensors at the surface, but, you know, what's going on three, 400 feet below? You know, mm-hmm. what's, what's the total heat content of, of, of that ocean? So, I, you know, I go back to uh, Florence once again. Remember, remember the eyewall replacement and never recovered? Uh, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there, there's there's rapid intensification situations. Michael, there's there's so many examples. I, I think I've used the stat before. There's only been four Category Fives to strike the continental United States that that we have on on record, and every one of them was a tropical storm three days prior. Right. I mean that. I, that's I the scariest of uh,
0: of all the stats, actually. <laughs> that
2: gives me that gives me chills okay. because it's the 35 storm. That's what you, you know. You go back to. Um, you know, Andrew, Camille, mm-hmm. um, and then Michael, those are the four. so that's that's pretty amazing. So we have there's there's still more to learn when it comes to intensity. In the Michael situation, I mean, there, there was a couple different centers. The rapid intensification there exceeded um, all the models. Um, in the Dorian situation, mm-hmm. big difference between the track was going to make a big difference in the actual eventual intensity. But we have a lot to learn with intensity. Is it the oceans? and and there there's some projects going on with the Navy, NOAA, they're they're using gliders. I've seen them made, um, being made over on Virginia Key at the right. NOAA building they're really fascinating. They're, they're dropped in the water. They're, they're trying to get a, a profile of the actual uh, water temperature, salinity. Uh, are we stirring up cold water? Are we stirring up warm water? What's going on? I, I think it, I mean, you can, I know you both can too. You think of all these examples. Gustav hit the loop current in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a thought that, you know, we're gonna get stronger. It's gonna maintain this strong strength it hit that loop current and weakened so fast, it was amazing. And it didn't have anything to do with the water. There was some dry air that got pulled in there and uh, choked off the storm. So it's not just the one parameter. There's so many different parameters that that go in here, but intensity is one. I think, you know, for all the young folks listening, I hope there's lots of them. Um, If you wanna get into a, a, a field of meteorology and oceanography, there's a lot to be learned about the intensity forecast of tropical systems and a lot of research to, to be able to turn be turned into operations.
0: Yeah, the Gustav thing came on the heels of the Katrina and the Wilma and the uh, Rita situation the year before, and especially Katrina and Rita went over the loop current and exploded into these big storms. So uh, that was certainly in everybody's mind. We got to let you go, Ken, but I didn't want you to go without being able to talk about what is new this season. I know you're putting storm surge forecasts, which are the same ones that have been in the advisory, but putting them on a map so they'll be kind of easier to see in reference uh, to each other. Uh, and what else are you kind of focusing on for hurricane season 2020?
2: Well, I think we've got two big things new this year. One of them you, you talked about, it's that map. It's It's a constant I don't want to say a struggle right it's a challenge to, to be able to put things together that's easy for social media easy for you to take in a briefing or put on the air i mean we're always looking at better ways to to be able to portray the information so it's a it's an experimental map it's the maximum area of uh, storm surge so it gives you the maximum values of storm surge along the coast it's a quick and dirty right it's mm-hmm. a quick way to see uh here's some trouble spots maybe i need to look further into it um, to be able to get the actual information and look at the inundation, so that's one. The other one I think is interesting. There's a new dot on the map. There's you're, you know you're going to look at the cone. Yeah, we're seeing it this sure. Yeah, 60 hours is mm-hmm. a new dot, and uh, you know, in, and at first you're like, well, that's kind of interesting. No, it's a big deal for us because. If you think about it, the storm surge forecast is actually a lot of times based on forward speed and actually the structure. The size of the storm has so much to do with the storm surge, even a lot of times even more to do with than the wind speed. So that's going to allow us to to have the structure of the storm in 60 hours, see the size. It's going to help us calculate the storm surge further out in time. I'm excited about that.
0: All right, Ken. Ken Graham, director of the National Hurricane Center. Thanks so much for. Your time this afternoon, and uh, and thanks for being part of our podcast. Always appreciate having you.
2: Definitely. Thank you both.
0: So, Luke, that was interesting. The whole discussion about Cristobal, and uh, you can tell there's a debate going on at the National Hurricane Center. If it loses its center and some center forms, it's more related to the gyre and so forth and so on. Uh, there's been some speculation I could tell about what we're going to call this thing. So this is going to be interesting here a couple of days from now.
1: Yeah, a little guarded with it, but you could tell. Yeah, we And we just won't know. We just don't know. And they don't know either. We're just going to have to wait and see um, how this goes. But it's so interesting because you're right. It went Amanda to Cristobal to maybe Cristobal, maybe uh, RD Storm. We'll just
0: have to see. And why can't I think of what the D name is? I can't either I, know. I said <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be. Anyway, that's sort of the, that, that just shows you that Mother Nature has many more varieties than the rules allow for, is what uh, that really shows. So, uh, you know, we I like to talk about past storms and past events because we can learn from them. But 2020 is an interesting year. Uh, 25 years ago was just a heck of a hurricane season, 1995, because really the world of of hurricanes changed for those of us that were around then and doing it because suddenly we started having all these storms. So it's like Mother Nature flipped a switch in 1995 and the Atlantic exploded with storms. Now, traditionally, uh, we've thought about this as being something called the Atlantic Multi Decadal Oscillation, the AMO. And sure enough, uh, Dr. Bill Gray. At Colorado State, a famous hurricane forecaster, really pioneered this thinking and, and these measurements to measure the temperature in the tropical Atlantic. And then it goes up and down in the number of hurricanes that are generated each year and the number of named storms and the amount of tropical activity goes up and down more or less with the temperature of the water, and you see general cycles in the temperature of the water. 25 to 40 years, it's a little warmer. Then 25 to 40 years, it's a little cooler. And sure enough, 1995 seemed like we were into another positive cycle. But there are some people which, who make a, a uh, kind of convincing argument that these cycles that we've seen when we really are only looking back in the 20th century for the most part, because we don't have details going back before that, Uh, might be a coincidence and it might not be quite so nice a 25 and 40 year cycle so anyway it's an interesting thing when you when you were in in school did they discuss the AMO was that a a thing I mean I know you were you studied more severe weather than and all this tropical stuff but was that a, a thing back then
1: Yes, it was. And, you know, when you're in college and you're studying things like that, especially I went to the University of Oklahoma. And you're right. Ours was geared toward severe weather, severe weather research, great plains type weather Not to, we studied tropical weather. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but um, it was brushed over and you may have spent an afternoon talking about tropical, you know, like the AMO. that may right. have been an afternoon or part of a part of one lecture. Uh, But yeah, it was brought up and it made it sound like it was fairly cut and dry. I've not heard what you're talking about right now where it's in question. Is it more noise or is it actual, uh, you know, the 25 to 45 year cycle, which is what I've been believing all this
0: time? Well, if you think about it. There's a very well-defined, see, it feels like a fairly well-defined cycle since 1995. And then you go back before 1995, kind of a down cycle going back to about 1970 or so. And then, right? And then you go, go back and then there was the up cycle in the late 20s, 30s, and 40s. And then there was, in theory, a down cycle before that. But it gets much noisier as you go back. So really, we only have two up cycles and two down cycles, sort of. That's all we have, right? And if this really has happened throughout time for every 25 or 40 years, uh, you know, it, that's a small sample to be able to say this has always happened, this has always gone to happen. So, anyway, it's just an interesting, interesting uh, discussion that uh, I, I've asked the question gee, when I look at the 19th century data, I know it's fuzzy, it's the 19th century. For goodness sakes, what do we, you know, really know? We don't know a whole lot. We didn't have any satellites. We we didn't have any uh, radios on ships. We didn't have all kinds of stuff. So, but when we look at it, it we it's not as well defined that that's a busy period. There are certainly some very busy years in the late 19th century, incredibly busy years. If they happen again, like 1886 or 1893, people would think, you know, the world is coming to an end. There were so many hurricanes hitting the United States. But then there were other years that was like nothing. It doesn't feel as much like an up period. So, but again, the data is so iffy that hard to say, hard to say. Anyway, it's an interesting topic, I think. Uh, 1995 was the fifth busiest year on, uh, in the record book. Uh, If you look at just how much energy was created in the tropics and, uh, and uh, it was quite a change. I remember it very, very well. We were thinking, oh, is this is this what Dr. Gray's been talking about all the time, that the switch has flipped and now we're going the other way? I know that was his uh, mantra that Florida has been lucky. Florida has been lucky all this time, and, and then 1995 came along.
1: Wait, were you already feeling, I don't know, I guess more hurricane-aware? With 92, because 92 was Andrew, of course, so the waiting for the big event kind of seems like it's already happened. Are you guys, are you just clearly looking at frequency over the entire Atlantic Basin?
0: Well, 93, kind of nothing happened. You know, it kind of went back to normal. So we, I think, thought of uh, 92 as being a little bit of a freak. Uh, So anyway, it's uh, hard to, hard to... uh, it's hard to remember exactly what happened. I don't remember what happened in 90. I mean, 94 was a fairly slow year. But I do remember that 95, given, given uh, Bill Gray a lot of credit for figuring out uh, in 95. Uh, Luke, I've lost your picture, but you're still there, right? I'm still here, okay. yeah. I'd- All right, right, cool. You
1: should see me again.
0: All right, so we're, um, anyway, we're just about to to wrap up here. I I did want to mention that 2020 is kind of a funny year. You know, we look back and kind of even anniversaries. So, like, 1920 was really not a big year. You know, you're looking back, 1970 was not a big year. So, last year, uh, in 2019, you had all these anniversaries that had all these mega storms. And then this year... You know, 1995 was a big year, and we'll talk about 1995's storms uh, in one of these later podcasts. But it's just kind of funny that that was the, the kind of even anniversary and the only one that really stands out as you look back.
1: Yeah, Opal was 95. Right? Yeah, Opal
0: was, Opal was one of them in 95. And, and uh, the Virgin Islands got creamed, and Maryland, uh, Luis and and Maryland, kind of back-to-back, uh, nasty uh, storms down there. But uh, there were just a lot of them. Uh, and it was just a very, very uh, busy season. So uh, we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, We'll be back with another podcast later on in June. Now, our guest coming up uh, in the next podcast, uh, we don't do him every week yet. We've got other stuff to do. We'll start up every week uh, when we get closer to to August. But our next one's going to be with Eli Jackson, and he's with the National Weather Service in Washington. You may not know Eli's name, but he's responsible for a lot of stuff you know. And he's running a program called the Hazard Simplification Project called HazSIMP. And the idea is to get rid of a lot of the types of warnings the National Weather Service puts out. And the current proposal is to get rid of the advisory. So the Flash flood advisory, the winter storm advisory or winter weather advisory would go away. And so uh, we're going to talk to Eli about that. He's he's kind of rolling it out to the public now and getting comments and and so forth. And that'll be in about three weeks. But be sure on your podcast app that you set to subscribe so you know when the next podcast comes up. Uh, I'm thinking it's probably going to be three weeks later. Uh, from now. So for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross uh, here on uh, Local 10 and, and our podcast. We appreciate you being with us. Stay safe, uh, be well, and we'll see you the next time.